If you'd like to open your Bibles to the book of Job, you can turn to the final chapter, Job 42, that's on page 446 of the ESV Pew Bibles. We've made it through the entire book. This will be the last Sunday we spend on Job. This has been a sermon series entitled God and Suffering. And we have interacted quite a bit on both of those topics as we've made our way through. And today we are going to be concluding the series. Uh, just so you have a preview, it looks like next week we'll be hearing from Elder Gary Guida. He's going to be bringing a sermon. And then we'll have Palm Sunday, Easter. And then towards the end of April we'll begin a new sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. But for now we're going to conclude the book of Job. And before we do that, let's go to the Lord prayer together. Heavenly Father, we approach your word with faith. We approach expectantly. We ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit so that you can give us eyes to see your truth, your word. We want to, first of all, understand this chapter, Lord. We ask for your blessing to accompany the reading and proclamation of your word. And we ask then also that we would apply it, that we would not simply look at it and hear it and, and walk away and not allow it to have any impact on our life, but instead take your word and let it have its intended um, purpose, and that is to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a game that's been around for a long time, and it's called Perfection. I don't know if you have played this game, or maybe you remember playing it when you were a child. <clears throat> it's a box, it's a plastic box, about the size of a, a shoe box, and it has a tray on top, and each, uh, there, there are several different recessed little areas on the tray, and then there are corresponding pieces all loose over here, that's part of the game, and you, you pick up the piece and you try to fit it into the corresponding spot on the tray. And it's, it's actually quite difficult because all the pieces are different, and at the same time, some of them are very similar. So you, you really have to look closely at each piece to make sure you're fitting it into the right spot. There's also a timer and an on and off switch. So to play, you push down on the tray until it locks into place, and then you set the timer, and when you're ready to begin, you hit the on button. And then you have whatever amount of time is on the timer to put all the pieces into the corresponding slots. Now, if you accomplish that, if you put all the pieces in the right spots before the timer runs out, then you hit the stop switch and you win. You win the game. Or if you're playing against someone else, they have to beat your time. If, however, you do not get all the pieces into the slots on time and the timer reaches zero, the tray locking mechanism releases and the entire tray pops up and all the pieces are sent flying into the air and it's immediately game over. It, the game ends instantly. It doesn't matter where you're at in the process of putting the pieces in. Now, it is actually, like I said, a more difficult game than you can imagine. The, it takes a lot of good uh, hand-eye coordination. It takes some fine visual discrimination skills. Some stars have five points, some have seven points, and it's kind of hard to tell when you're trying to hurry. 
And so for a child to complete this game, because they don't know when it's coming, they, they're, they're busy moving the pieces and trying to find the right spot. They can't just watch the timer. So when it pops, it's terrifying to, to have that go off in your face. It's almost like a bomb exploding. And even for adults, uh, if you're not ready for it, it can be quite startling to have the timer go off and all the pieces go flying into the air. And in that sense, the game is extremely unforgiving. When time is up, time is up. There are no second chances. It doesn't matter if you have one piece left, it's over. The game is finished. In Job chapter 42, we see several time's up moments. Time is up for Job's three friends. They're done railing against Job and pressuring him to accept their worldview. That's it. It's over. Time's up. No more of that. Time's up regarding Job's suffering. Finally, after all this lengthy time of Job enduring excruciating pain and, and the, the torment of, of, of not knowing if it's ever going to end, it's over. Job finds relief. In fact, he's completely restored. In fact, he's beyond restored. He's restored a, a double portion of everything he had prior to his trial. This whole chapter is about time's up endings. The whole, the whole book comes to an end. We're in the last chapter. And even at the very end, the very last verse is recording the end of Job's life. So there's several time's up moments in chapter 42. And because there are so many, it, it forces us to acknowledge that there is an end. There is a, a time's up coming for all of us at some point. The question we're going to examine is this. What will it look like for us when God says, time's up? So let's go ahead and read chapter 42. Listen for those time's up moments. This is 42 starting at 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with that knowledge, without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him.
upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And all in the land where there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. This is Job's final response. This is Job's final speech. And we know that God has spoken twice. We didn't want to break up those God speeches, so we looked at each one of those individually. God had given Job, first of all, a holistic answer and taught him that God is greater than man and that God can be trusted with running the universe. Suffering and evil exist in this world, but God um, is in control. Suffering and evil serves God's purposes, and of course they will not last forever. And Job knows that God is the only one who is able to administer perfect justice. God is the only one to, who can bring evil to an end, even our greatest enemies, the devil and death itself, which were symbolically represented as Behemoth and Leviathan. We looked at that last week. So now Job answers, and his, Job, his answer has three parts. Part number one, I have learned. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What is Job confessing there? God is greater than man. Job learned. God drilled that message into him through the repeated challenge questions that were asked during the God speeches, and Job has learned. We also understand it is not our place to armchair quarterback God's purposes and plans and decrees. It is the height of hubris to think that we could run the universe better than God or that God is capable of making mistakes. Job understands this with new clarity. God is greater than man. So Job, Job is saying he learned that. Number two, I confess. It says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Do you see the, the single quotation marks around that? It's because he's quoting God. Job's quoting God. This is what God had said in Job 38.2. And then Job says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So this is Job's way of, of confessing his guilt. He's confessing. This is a way, his way of saying, That which you accuse me of, I have done, God. That, that, that what you said of me earlier, and as he quotes him, and then he says, Yeah, I did that. I agree. I agree with what you're saying, Lord. Job had been taught the things of God from his elders, and he realizes now that those things are wrong. Finally, number three, I repent. So number one, I learned. Number two, I confess. And number three, I repent. He says, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Again, single quotation marks. He's quoting God. And then Job says, I have heard of you by hearing in the ear, but now... My eye sees you. So God is saying, I, or excuse me, Job is saying, I have had some knowledge of you, God. I, I, I had been taught by my elders. I had heard things about you. I thought I knew you. He knew God was perfectly just, holy, and righteous. He knew that. He knew God was all-powerful. 
Job knew of God by way of his ear, but now he says he has seen God. Not literally, of course, because God is spirit and he is invisible. He appeared to Job in a whirlwind. Remember, that was what we call a theophany. That was a visible manifestation of God that was not God. God is invisible. But God spoke to Job. Job now sees God clearly because God spoke to him. God revealed his word to him. God gave him special revelation. He addressed him directly. And so Job now sees God. He sees correctly. He sees God correctly. His vision is clear to see God. And he can also see his suffering and that experience correctly because God has spoken him. Job now knows that God has never abandoned him. Remember, that was one of the things that Job thought had happened. Job thought that God had made him his enemy. Job now knows that's not true. Satan was the real enemy. In fact, God had kept Satan on a leash and it prevented him from completely destroying Job. Job now knows that his suffering is neither a punishment from God for some big secret sin, and that's what his three friends were insisting the whole time, neither had God made a mistake and was was punishing him unjustly, which is what Job had concluded. It's neither of those two options. Instead, Job knows that it was Satan. And Job realizes and sees his sin correctly. We can hear that as he speaks. He realizes he was wrong to call out God and to summon God and and demand that he show up in a courtroom and answer for his his actions. Job now realizes he was way out of line. He he crossed the line. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated. He's filled with regret for the things he said. Job is is sickened by his own posture of of pride and and presumption. And we can hear that in, in his language. Look what he says. Therefore, I despise myself. And repent and dust is and dust and ashes. Job is saying, I can't believe I said those things. I, I can't believe that was me. I am so, so sorry, God. Please forgive me. Verse 7, we move on to his three friends, and it's time's up for the three friends. In verse 7, God tells Job's three friends. that his anger burns against them. Why? Because, it says, they did not speak rightly about God, as Job has. Now, we understand that throughout the book, and we've seen this, we've covered the whole book, occasionally the three friends had said something that said some things that were accurate about God, that's true. And, of course, Job had said some things that were not true. God had not really turned into his enemy. But on the whole, God evaluates their speeches and says, no, uh, you guys have not spoken what was correct. Job has. Because remember, Job maintained the whole time that that God was, uh, or excuse me, Job maintained the whole time that he was not enduring some kind of uh, uh, punishment for some big sin and that there was this this philosophy in the world that all sin can be explained and there is no such thing as undeserved suffering. Job rejected that the whole time. And so now God is vindicating Job. Um, we, we, we called that system, remember we called it Bildad's shoe at one time. It's the idea that, that good things only happen to good people and bad things only happen to bad things or bad people. No, Job says he never went along with that. 
So God is not pleased with the three friends. They spoke wrongly about God, they misrepresented God, and they pressured Job. They, they were trying to persuade him to accept their worldview and their thinking. So he says, time's up. You guys are done talking wrongly about me and accusing Job. And God calls Job my servant. And we don't want to just gloss over that. Not once, not twice, not three times, four times in a, in a span of three verses, God calls Job my servant. Now why is that significant? God would later use that same language to refer to Moses, and specifically in the context of Numbers 12. And this is, remember, when Aaron and Miriam were, were starting to question Moses' leadership, and so they spoke out against him. God showed up and said, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant, Moses? So when God uses that language, my servant, and especially in types of confrontational types of things like Numbers 12 or like right, right here where there's, there's people opposed, my servant, God shows up. It's like he's putting his arm around them and snugging them in close and saying, it's my servant. Why were you not afraid to speak against him? It's the same thing here with Job. This, Job, this, this is my servant. You're, if you mess with him, you're messing with me. Now, what, what was that? Do you, what, you have a problem with my servant? Of course, God calls Jesus my servant later on in Isaiah 49. So it's, whenever someone is tagged or identified as my servant, it's God's way of saying, no, this one's mine. This one belongs to me. So God makes sure everybody knows exactly where they stand. To the three friends, he says, my anger burns against you. And to Job, he says, this is my servant. And he snugs him in a little bit closer. How humbling for Job's three friends. Remember, they were so sure of themselves. They were so sure that they were right. And now God shows up and says, no, you were wrong. Job was right. And if that wasn't humbling enough, verses 8 and 9, God commands them to go to Job, who is again called my servant, and they are to offer up a burnt offering, and Job will pray for them. So now, all of a sudden, at the end, they've been, they've been railing against him. All of a sudden, Job is their only hope. Job is their only lifeline. They have to now turn to Job Again, how humbling must that have been? Job will act as a priestly mediator between the three friends and God and will make intercessory prayer for them. And it is only through Job that God will accept them and not count them uh, or not deal with them according to their folly. So this is God telling Job's three friends, time's up, you're, you're done. Yeah, no, no more of that. Then restoration, verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Time's up for, God's, time's up for Job's suffering. It, it's at an end. He has patiently endured. He has, he has never uh, turned his back upon God, and now it says that time is over. Time for restoration and double blessing. Verse 11, look how everybody comes back and rejoins Job in fellowship. Uh, they ate bread together, they, they showed sympathy for Job, all of a sudden everybody's his friend again. What stark contrast to how they treated him 
when he was going through his trial. Look at, back at Job 19. Maybe we forgot. Job 19, 13 and 14. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. That was part of the suffering, being rejected by those closest to him. But that time is up. It's all over. No more estrangement. Full restoration. They're bringing him gifts, silver and gold. They're showing displays of comfort. Everything's, everything's good. We're, we're back. Back to normal now. And it says, comfort for all the evil that the Lord had brought him. If you see a footnote, if you've got the ESV, it's got a footnote. It says, or disaster. That can be translated as evil, disaster, misery, calamity. Yes, God was the sender, but Satan was the agency. We need to keep that distinction. Satan was the point of contact when it came to Job's, Job's suffering. It was Satan inflicting the pain. We read that God blessed uh, the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Verse 10 said twice as much. Is that true? Well, let's check it out. Here's a comparison. Job 1 and Job 42. At the beginning, 7,000 sheep. At the end, 14,000. The beginning, 3,000 camels. At the end, 6,000. 500 yoke of oxen, 1,000. 500 female donkeys, 1,000 female donkeys. So yeah, it checks out. Double portion, a double blessing. Remember at the beginning, chapter 1 of Job describes him as the greatest man in all the East. Well, now he's even greater. He's greater than the greatest man in all the East. It also says seven sons and three daughters. And, of course, some people say, well, is that really twice as much? Shouldn't he, have, shouldn't he have 20 children at the end? Well, actually, he still does. Remember, his first children are living in the presence of the Lord. And so you add the 10 at the end, and that brings a total of 20. Special mention is made of Job's daughters that were born to him in his, his post-trial period. Their names are mentioned. They are described as exceedingly beautiful. And Job gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now this was an act of an abundant generosity. In the ancient Near East, inheritance from one generation to another was passed down through the sons. That's just how they did it. And that was to make sure that everybody got covered. The daughters of the family would marry someone else's son. So, so everybody received family inheritance. That's the way they kept it fair. This is being extremely generous. And then finally, time's up for Job's life. Verse 16, it says Job lived another 140 years. So if we keep with this double portion, double blessing after the trial, then most conclude that before his suffering, he had reached the age of 70, and then after another 140 years, so he lived to be about 210. And this is well within acceptable age ranges for that time period. The patriarchs lived that long or longer Abraham was 175, so we're, we're fine on the age. He lived twice as long, and he was greater than before his trial. More family, more wealth, more animals, more children, more blessings from God, more life, just more of everything. This, this was the pinnacle of what it looked like to be someone blessed in the ancient Near East. All, all, all the, the animals and the family and the the, the honor and the respect. This was just, you couldn't ask for anything more. And God gave it to Job. And then finally it says that Job died an old man full of days. So even for Job, even after all the blessing and the double portion, God eventually taps him on the shoulder and says, time's up.
you're done too. We want to draw three applications from this text. Number one, if we want to see God, we will look at his word. If we want to see God, we will look at his word. If we want to see God clearly, then then we will look to the word of God. Verse 5 says, I had heard of you, but now my eye sees you. The reason Job could see God was because God spoke to him. That was the only thing that changed here. That was what made the difference. It wasn't that Job all of a sudden had an epiphany or he realized something deep in his heart. It was external. It came outside of him. It came from God. And that was what allowed him to see God clearly. Now, you can hear just about anything about God today. Uh, You know, TV, movies, internet. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there, and you can hear just about anything. But all of it, if it's not from God's Word, is secondhand. There was a a small town in the middle of, of the Midwest, and they were so small that they'd never had their own grocery store before. And they were getting a grocery store. So you can imagine, that was, that was the big deal. That was what everybody was talking about. They always had to drive 30 minutes to the nearest town to get groceries. Now they were, they were finally getting a grocery store. And so one neighbor said to another neighbor, well, I heard it's going to open up next week. And the next neighbor said, well, that's what I heard too. But I, I actually, now I heard it was delayed because they, they can't get the, the freezer units on time. They're, they're back ordered. And so it's not going to be open next week. And the first one said, well, I heard it was. And then, then they finally, at the end, said, well, you know what, I, I just heard that secondhand. And, and the other neighbor said, yeah, I, me too. I guess it's all secondhand. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. And we understand that, right? We've probably used that phrase, I, I've heard it secondhand. What we're saying when we say we've heard something secondhand is we're acknowledging that there might not be 100% accuracy in the news that we heard. Because it's heard secondhand. It's not from the authoritative source itself. It's the same thing with God. But strange as it may seem, people today are willing to accept secondhand information about God. I mean, life and death are hanging in the balance. You're talking about an eternity between heaven and hell, and some people are simply willing to accept Secondhand information. A couple of years ago, I was listening to the radio, and they were dis- it was it was two people. It was like a talk show, and they were discussing the the things of God, or they were discussing the nature of God, and what they were saying was simply not true. It, it didn't match Scripture. It was false, and yet it was on the radio, and people were believing it. And both both talk show hosts were, were agreeing with each other on, on how this is how God is. Secondhand. Uh, parents, sometimes we get secondhand information from parents. Now, let me be clear. Children, you are to obey your parents. And you are also to believe your parents about the things of God. Insofar as parents, you are teaching your children accurately from the Bible. That's how that works. Uh, I, I had loving parents, they were well meaning. But they taught me some things that were wrong. 
they, they taught me some things that were wrong about God, and they taught me some things that were wrong about the Bible, and it wasn't until later I had to be corrected from God's Word, being taught by gifted and called teachers in God's church. And they showed me where I had been taught wrong. So it was secondhand information. If we're going to see God for who he really is, then we need to see his word. We've got to go to his word. And that's why uh, faithful churches put so much an emphasis on scripture. That's why inerrancy is such a big doctrine, such a big deal to the church. It's why uh, we have a long scripture reading. Even in our worship service, we have this scripture reading. We have the text for the sermon. We also have another scripture reading, a big chunk of it. It's because we want people to see God. We don't want second-hand information. And we're also commanded, 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So there's really no way of getting around it. That's why also, faithful churches, you're going to see consecutive expository preaching. You're going to see Pastors move through the Bible methodically. They're going to go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. With full explanation, illustration, and application. The the point of the, the passage is going to be the point of the sermon. That is so that people see God and not the speaker. This is opposed to... Um, topical preaching. Um, this is giving a talk of, of the speaker's choosing and once in a while just kind of pulling a, a verse out of context and, and then bringing it in or putting it up and, and having it lend support what, to whatever you're already speaking. I mean, that can be done once in a while selectively if you're doing a specific sermon, but a steady diet of that is not going to allow people to see God. They're only going to see the speaker. They're only going to see what the speaker wants to talk about. Um, I was at a, a church one time, and there was a guest speaker, uh, not a regular speaker, and they, they used a couple verses as a jumping-off point, and then the rest of the time they started talking about personal stories, and it kind of got, um, I kind of got lost a couple times, and then, and then they, they spoke really energetically about some things they'd like to see change in the world, and then something else, and by the time it was all over, I thought, that I didn't ever hear from God. I, I didn't hear you explain it. They must have seen this look on my face because they came up to me afterwards and they asked. They said, so what did you think of the sermon? I said, that, that's not preaching, what you did. The, the, the Bible and the church has historically understood preaching as, as the explanation of, of the text and then an application of it. I said, you didn't do that. And they doubled down. They said, well, they, they defended it. They said, well, I don't, I don't use notes because I don't want to box God in. I don't want to restrict what the Holy Spirit is, is saying to me in the moment. So I just, I read it and then I say whatever comes to mind. I said, yeah, that's, that's not preaching. <laughs> that's, that's giving a talk. The people are never going to see God with kind of shooting from the hip talks. They're only going to see the speaker and what's on the speaker's heart. So if we want to see God, we we need to look to his word. That's number one. Number two, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. 
And I would say at this point, you really have to be almost out to lunch not to see Job functioning as a type of Christ here. I mean, look, God designates one man, Job, to act as a priestly mediator on the behalf of his three friends. God has designated one man, Jesus, to be a priestly mediator on the behalf of sinners. God calls Job my servant. God calls Jesus my servant. God will accept Job's prayer on their behalf. God will accept Jesus' intercessory prayers on our behalf. God ultimately does not treat them according to their folly because of the work of Job. God does not treat sinners according to their sin because of the work of Jesus Christ and are, are coming to him in faith. So once again, Job is functioning as a type of Christ. Uh, Jesus, of course is our priestly mediator, and he offered himself, not bulls and rams, but his own body, his own blood, on behalf of his people. Jesus makes intercessory prayers on behalf of his people, and of course, Jesus' prayers are always answered. Jesus' prayers never fail, and we are accepted by God only through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the door. He is the gate. We all, as sinners, deserve the wrath of God, but praise God, he does not deal with us according to our sins. He has sent his mediator, Jesus, and he extends the promise to everyone. Whoever repents and believes in my son will not have his sins counted against him. I will forgive you. I will declare you righteous in my sight. Job's three friends would not be dealt with according to their folly if they turn to Job and obey God's instructions. We also will not be dealt with according to our sins if we turn to Jesus and obey God's instructions. There's really no way to miss the fact that Job is asked, acting as a type of, Jesus, as a type of Christ. Uh, Psalm 103.10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That sounds almost exactly what it says like here in Job. And then the Bible tells us, what must we do? Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So God has told us, these are our instructions, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. That is what Peter told the listeners. And then again in Acts 17, we're told this. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's Jesus as a judge. So Acts 2, Jesus is Savior. Acts 17, he's the judge. Well, which is it? It's both. It's both. If we turn to Jesus now as Savior, we are forgiven our sins. If we do not turn to Jesus now and wait till we stand before him as judge, we will receive just judgment for our sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. So number one, if we want to see God, we need to look at his word. Number two, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And number three, God and suffering. This sermon series has been titled God and Suffering. That's been the focus of the theme of the whole book. So we want to close out with touching on some of these themes. 
Some of them rather, rather quickly, and then the last one will develop just a, just a little bit. So number one, uh, first of all, I hope we've debunked the, the theory that, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. I hope, I hope nobody's hanging on to that. We, we've, we've hit that pretty hard throughout the whole sermon series. I think we understand that, that, that we've rejected Bill Dead's shoe and that whole philosophy uh, there is no one-to-one ratio between sin and suffering. We don't look on somebody else and say, well, they must have done something really bad. That, that's just not true. That's just not true. But we've also learned some other things. We can learn to trust God with the purpose of our suffering. And one way to look at this is to remember that we don't have to know the answer to the why question if we know the answer to the who question. So we don't need to know why Why me, Lord? Why did you send me this? Or why is this happening? Or why now? Or, or why did that have to happen to, to my, my family member? Or whatever the why question is. We don't necessarily need to know the answer to that if we know the answer to the who question. Who has sent this? Who, who's running the universe here? Well, it's God, and we can trust him. And if we understand that God is the one who is providentially ordering our lives, and that everything he does is good and perfect, then we don't need to have an answer to the why question. Sometimes he gives us the answer, but not all, all the time. And we don't need it. We can trust him. Suffering leads to thankfulness. Job is, among other things, a picture of suffering. He's a picture of Christ's suffering. Remember, we, he, he functions as a type on several different levels. One of them is his physical suffering. In fact, C.J. Williams, who's a... Uh, an academic Old Testament guy says Job, quote, should be read as a companion to the Gospels and as a window into the heart of our Lord who loved us enough to suffer in the place. So when we pick up and we read, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we read, we read the Gospels, we, we see Jesus, we see his passion, we, we can also pick up Job and see a picture, a little bit more detail of some of the agony that Christ suffered on our behalf. It gives us an extreme picture of personal suffering, a fraction of the suffering that Jesus experienced. And of course, suffering that we ourselves deserve. It gives us a picture of the suffering that we deserve, but that Jesus has borne in our place. So it points us to Jesus. And every time we look at Job, every time we experience suffering ourselves, we can thank God that we have been spared the suffering that Jesus bore in our place. So thank you, Lord. We are to learn from suffering. Suffering teaches us to trust. It drains the pride out of us. There's nothing that brings the pride out of somebody like a good old-fashioned uh, season of suffering in their life. It, it just immediately cuts, cuts humans down at the, at the knees. It, it humbles us. It teaches us dependence. It makes us weak. It makes us... Uh, it, so we have no choice but to surrender fully to our most powerful God and to his will for our life, and not our will and what we want. We are prepared through suffering. Life's challenges, trials, sufferings, dark moments are from God, and they are designed to prepare us for future work that he has for us to do. Suffering and trials prepare us in ways that cannot be accomplished through anything other than suffering for future work. So they are refining. They are formative. And then finally the last one, and this one I think is often overlooked. 
Suffering, or excuse me, Job shows us that there is an end coming. Job shows us that there is an end coming. There is a point when God says, time's up. There is a final reckoning. All, all of this, our life, this world, everything that's going on, everything that's so important and pressing, there's an end coming. There, there's a time where the, where the locking mechanism release, is going to be released and the tray is just going to pop up and it's, it's gone, we're done. It's over. A time's up moment. Chapter 42 is a shadow of what is to come for all of us. Job and his three friends experience judgment from God. It shows us that we will stand before God and be judged. Those that are in Christ by faith, will, he will accept, he will not deal with according to our sin. He will welcome them into his presence. We know that God has prepared an eternal reward for those that follow him in faith and that love him. Job was, was blessed beyond imaginable. Remember, he was already the greatest man and then he got double of everything. He was beyond the greatest man. Likewise, God teaches us that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, for those who are in Christ. Those outside of Christ will experience the full, unshielded wrath of God. God will declare with finality who his servants are and who aren't. His anger will burn against all who have failed to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who just never got around to repenting and believing, or who remained indifferent. So the question, as we look at the end of Job and the and, and the, the fact that it teaches us that there is a time's up coming for all of us is this. What will the end look like for me when I stand before Christ? What will it look like for me when God taps me on the shoulder and says, time's up? What will it look like? Job never renounced his faith in God. Because he knew that no matter what was happening to him in, in this life, no matter how much suffering he was experiencing, he was still going to have to stand before God. He knew that. And likewise, we want to stand our ground and remain faithful in this life, even if it is filled with suffering. We are to remain faithful even if it is filled with suffering. We want to be able to hold our head up high, not, not in some prideful confidence of, of self-ability. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being able to, to with a clean conscience, and write, say this, I have, to the best of my ability, I have lived rightly before God. I have not renounced my faith. So the question here is, for, for those that aren't in Christ, if you're not in Christ, what's holding you back from repenting and believing? Because there is an end. There is a time's up moment coming. And faith in Christ is the only way to escape the wrath of God for our sin. So we want to turn to Jesus before time's up. Before the timer goes off. We're, we're, we're busy, I think, oftentimes trying to, to put all the pieces of our life in place. We're, okay, I've got to get a, a good preparation or job training or education. I've got to land a good job or I need to get that promotion. And Okay, we're going to save for this and we've got to get this house. Or we're, we're moving down here next and uh, this is what I want for my kids, so I'm going to funnel them this way. Or you know, I've got to get my retirement, I've got to get this thing set so I don't have any risk. And we're putting all these pieces in our life, but we realize at any moment, 
pieces could go flying in the air. Time's up. We can't see the timer. We don't know when it's going to go off. Providentially, I heard just uh, about 20 minutes ago, as, as I sat down, Dawn informed me, one of our high school t- uh, classmates died. 55. We don't know when the timer's going off. Here's the thing about death. It is very unforgiving. There are no second chances. You know how there are certain things in life when you look back on your life and you think, hmm, if I had only made that decision. And there's regret. You, you can look back in your life and it's like, if I, if I hadn't gone there that night, I would have, wouldn't have torn my knee and now I wouldn't be walking around with a limp today. I wish I hadn't gone there that night. Or maybe it's some decision you made or, or some kind of fork in the road and you really wished, ah, if I had just taken the other, the other fork, I, I things would be different today. God puts time in place and lets us live our life and, and then look back and he allows us to experience regret. And he also allows us to see that there is absolutely no way you can go back and change those decisions. That is teaching us what it's like at the end. He wants us to understand that there's going to be a point in time, and that's when we die or when Christ returns, whichever comes first. Time's up. And just like all those other points in your life where you wish you could go back and change, but you can't, it's going to be the same thing at the end. There is no way anyone will be able to go back. Purgatory is a lie from the pit of hell. There is no such thing as purgatory. Purgatory allows people to take a kickback attitude towards their salvation because they think, well, you know, in the end, if I'm not quite ready, I guess I'll work it off in purgatory. There is no purgatory it is appointed man wants to die and then face judgment. That's what scripture teaches. Let's turn to Jesus now as Savior, Acts 2, so we don't have to face him as judge, Acts 17. Now is the time. If you are not in Christ, repent and believe before the timer reaches zero. If you are a believer, if you are already in Christ, the question is this, is there anything holding you back from pushing all your chips into the center of the table and declaring yourself all in for Jesus? Is there anything holding you back? Is there, is there some sin that has ensnared you? Is, is there something that's, that, that you just don't want to give up control over in your life, or are you too prideful? Is there anything like that? Is there, is there anything that is holding you back from going all in, saying no matter what the cost, or no matter how much suffering I experience in this life, you're going to just draw a line in the sand and say, to the best of my ability, as far as it's humanly possible, I'm going to live for you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to live for you, Jesus, everything I have, my whole being is yours. Because say what you want about Joe, but he stuck it out. He endured to the end, and he finished well. That's what Scripture teaches, my servant. He finished well. So what's preventing us from saying, I want to live rightly and obediently before you, Lord? Again, not in our own strength. 
What, what's preventing us from saying, no matter what the enemy throws at me, sickness, injury, financial ruin, betrayal of friends, tragedy, discouragement, personal attack, you name it. What, what's holding us back from saying, I'm not going to turn and run. I'm not going to give up and give in. I'm not going to cut myself off from you, God, or from church, or from, from your word. I'm going to turn inward, start living for myself. None of that. What, what's preventing us? If there is something preventing you, I would exhort you to get rid of it. Throw it out. Immediately. And say, I'm going to endure. I'm going to follow Jesus until time's up. Because I want to hear Jesus say my name and pull me in close and say, my servant. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we acknowledge freely that this is the only way that we can see you clearly. Father, we ask that you would help us to, to live fully for you. If there is anything that is holding us back right now, Father, I ask that you would reveal that, convict us. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, allow us to turn to you with reckless abandon. Father, thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.